A few years ago, the Minneapolis Community and Technical College formed a partnership with Puntland State University in Somalia. Acknowledging the economic disparity between the institutions, the officials at MCTC donated several scholarships to Puntland, providing a few Somali students the opportunity to receive an education here in the United States. Puntland expressed its sincere gratitude to MCTC with a symbolic gift, a camel. Not not the cigarette, but the real life and blood camel dromedary. As the camel could not actually be shipped to Minneapolis, the beast remained with its herd in Somalia. But the Puntland officials assured their Minneapolis counterparts that they could visit the gift camel in Somalia anytime they wished. Well, this gift did not exactly lead the evening news. Uh, Granting full benefit of the doubt to the sincerity of these Somali officials and educators, their gift was not newsworthy because it had no real value and it affected no one. It was purely symbolic and thus of no consequence, as well-intentioned as it may have been. But how radically different the news that we gather to celebrate this Christmas day God sent His eternal Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to leave the splendors of heaven to take on human flesh. And God's people have gathered on the Lord's day for 2,000 years, exulting in the truth that Jesus is the ultimate gift of inestimable worth and infinite importance. We worship Him today. We find the historical record of the coming of Christ to earth in two New Testament passages, as we know. The most extensive being found in the second chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. It's been, this is hard to believe, but some eight years since we've been through this section of Scripture. And it's important that we consider it from time to time and continue to be familiar with it as some come to knowledge of it and others of it have heard it many times. But I think fitting on this day for us to turn to Luke 2 and to consider at some length this passage of Scripture as it forms us as God's people and allow it to do that. Let me give three goals as we work our way through this text today. The first is to deepen our knowledge of this vital moment in salvation history. Feeding our souls on God's truth. As we consider old ideas, truths that we perhaps know but to feed our souls on the truth that God has revealed. Secondly, and it may be in a minor sense, but I think in a significant sense, I'd like to dispel a few myths along the way, seeking to align our belief with what the Bible actually teaches about the birth of Christ. And then thirdly, as we come to close, to consider some application to our daily lives of this account. We'll soak deeply in it for some time here, but it does change us and form us and direct us in a certain way. So as we take in these familiar words, let's be reminded as we work toward the end of our time together here that these truths have a significant influence upon our lives as followers of Christ. They're intended to do so. This narrative is not here because it's a nice story. It's here to change us. Let's consider that as we walk again through this important text and establish as a church the true tradition of God's revealed Word. Now as we come into Luke chapter 2, we need to come with us armed with the knowledge of the history of prophetic declarations which serve like runway lights pointing to Christ. There's space in between these lights darkness between these lights, but they point unmistakably to the person of Jesus Christ, guiding God's people to anticipate this Messiah who is to come. What do we know of that, that, of that anticipation, that preparation? He would be an ancestor of King David. This Messiah would be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7.14, in the village of Bethlehem of Judea, Micah 5 and verse 2. As we consider this one, and as God's people identified this one, 483 years after the decree permitting the Jews to rebuild Jerusalem, this Messiah would come to present Himself as King of Israel. Daniel 9. He would die a violent death by execution. 
bearing the sins of his people, and yet his body would not see decay. Jesus was not made an object of worship after his death. He was indeed the object of worship for centuries before his birth. People just did not know precisely who he was. But these runway lights of prophecy point to this one, Jesus Christ. And we come then in Luke 2 to the place where the prophecies begin to be fulfilled. Those prophecies pertaining particularly to his birth. As we enter Luke chapter 2 at verse 1 and down as we work our way through to verse 4, we look at the providential developments that lead to Joseph and Mary's arrival in Bethlehem. Verse 2 reads, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. In those days, specifically in this context, in the days of heightened preparatory revelation. Angels have been giving revelation to Mary, to Elizabeth, to Zechariah, and we've been reading about that in Luke chapter 1. So in these days of preparation for Messiah to identify who He is, in these days, Caesar Augustus sends out a decree Rome is governed as a republic for centuries, but in 27 B.C., General Octavian was named Caesar Augustus by the Senate. And historical records surviving to our day demonstrate that what's happening here was fairly common. That rulers would dictate, would decree that there would be a census or a registration primarily to aid in their taxation of subjects. This decree from Augustus involved all the world. Don't think every square inch of the planet, but that was a common phrase that referred to the Roman Empire. So Caesar's decree involves all of the empire, and they are to gather and be registered. Now Luke pinpoints this empire-wide registration as taking place while Quirinius governed Syria. Now there were changes in all of this order in the Roman Empire, but at this particular time, Quirinius governed Syria, which was a province of the Roman Empire that held jurisdiction over Judea, where we know that King Herod ruled in some sense of that word. But we notice then that this is no once upon a time fairy tale. Remembering the first four verses of this book, Luke puts his reputation on the line as a physician and as an author by specifically setting this account in his historical context. A context that was a matter of public record. This isn't once upon a time. This is Caesar Augustus, Quirinius ruling over Syria. Fairy tales are great fun and they they have a literary place in this world, but they're enjoyable because we know that they're fairy tales. Take the fairy tale of Rapunzel. I mean, isn't that great fun? You can imagine this woman dropping down her hair from the tower where she's uh, imprisoned and this Prince Charming climbing up her locks to visit her in the tower. If you can't enjoy that story on some level, you're really a dull person and you need to read more fairy tales. It's just a good story. But it is a good story. We enjoy Rapunzel because we know up front it's once upon a time. It's a fairy tale. There was an essay written in our local newspaper here this month that assured all readers that modern science had come to prove to all that the account of Jesus' birth is a fairy tale. This was the claim. If that's the case, there's something deeply disordered about this text. There's something, in fact, in the writings of Luke that is evil. Looking at the first four verses of this book, and looking at the first couple of verses here in chapter 2, Luke is not writing a story. This is not a myth. In fact, we would say that Luke presents Christ's birth as a historical event because it was true. A true account 
on which our salvation depends. Apart from this, apart from this One who has come, God in flesh, we have no salvation. And we see how carefully Luke labors to identify the specific place chronologically where this took place. So providentially, Caesar's census included a rather strange and complicated requirement, at least from our perspective, and that is verse 3, all went to be registered each to his own town. In the day where communication was nothing like our own day, this was a challenge, a significant detail in this account, because it meant that, verse 4, that Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Now, every biblically-minded Israelite knew well that Bethlehem was the place where Messiah would be born. At least that was a, a generally understood. But you see, Joseph and Mary here, not running off to Bethlehem to fulfill Micah 5 too. They do not yet understand the significance of their situation. They don't yet fully conceive of the angel's message and all of the implications for their son. No, it's providence that arranges this journey to Bethlehem. As the kings of the empire move their pawns about, the Lord of the universe is moving those kings to accomplish His saving plan. In simple obedience to the emperor, Joseph sets out with Mary. And likely there's other travelers with them. And they make this long, arduous four-day journey south from Nazareth, upward in elevation from Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, situated in the Judean hills near Jerusalem. Joseph's ancestor David was the greatest king of Israel. Bethlehem was David's hometown. Wow, how times had changed. How times had changed. It is at the behest of an occupying empire that Joseph, an offspring of the great King David, enters into Bethlehem as a carpenter. We don't know exactly what work Joseph did. The term is not that distinct, but in some way a common laborer, this son of King David. He trudges into Bethlehem to report to the pagan authorities who rule. And perched on the highest hill southeast of this village of Bethlehem, there was a castle. This castle loomed, the castle of King Herod, as a ominous symbol that King David's family was no longer ruling in Judea. Verse 5, they come to Bethlehem to be registered. He comes with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. His betrothed, Jewish weddings involved two stages as we may remember. Joseph and Mary were legally husband and wife. In this betrothal period, they had to get divorced if they were going to break that stage of the marriage. It's, so it's unlike engagement today. We might uh, have emotional trauma that takes place when we break an engagement, but there's no need for a legal divorce. In betrothal, you had to be legally divorced to end that relationship. Now, in this first stage of marriage, it was somewhat ingenious, but the couple did not live together. They were not permitted to enjoy sexual relations, but during this time, they were encouraged to develop emotional and romantic interests in one another. The period almost never lasted more than a year unless there was something very unusual. But this period allowed them to develop that emotional tie, and it also served, not in a perfect way, but in some sense to prove that a woman was a virgin. We can hardly overestimate the social ostracism that Joseph and Mary would have suffered because she was pregnant during her betrothal period, during this betrothal stage of their marriage. Joseph would not have been seen as a self-respecting, upstanding young man to say nothing of how Mary would have been viewed by the majority. But these are considerations for another day. What we find is the fact that she was with child. She was pregnant. 
the picture in many heads now, as we read this, is that Joseph and Mary arrive in Bethlehem in the middle of the night. Mary is experiencing labor pains, and the local Super 8 has a neon no vacancy sign lit up. That's all they can find. They can't, they're desperate to find a place for Mary to lay down to give birth. And so we see Joseph scrambling about to find this place. But we should understand that the Greek word translated with child is a generic term. It does not say how far along she was. The King James adds the word great, that she was great with child, but we really don't know how far along she might have been. Now this is Joseph's family village. There is virtually no doubt that he had a number of relatives living in Bethlehem and undoubtedly found lodging with one of his relatives. It would have been an immense shame in that day to have a relative in town and to have them find lodging in an inn. That didn't happen. If they were your relatives, they were yours to take care of. Uh, uh, This is his village Knowing the hospitality laws of the day, it is almost certain that he would have found lodging with some family member. So it's exceedingly unlikely then that Mary gave birth the night that they arrived in Bethlehem. They would have arrived sometime before. The record of that birth is found in verse 6, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. While they were there... The time came. That's not a phrase you would expect if they just slipped into town while she's having labor pains. They'd been living there, and as they're living there, the time of birth came, and the day had come for Christ to be born. Matthew 2 indicates that after the family returned from Egypt to escape Herod's murderous plot, Joseph intended to return to Judea, we would assume, to Bethlehem to live. Now, if you think in those terms, that it would appear then that Joseph and Mary fully intended to leave Nazareth for good. To come to Bethlehem, because that's where they would have lived after they returned from Egypt. You would assume that was the idea before the, quick, the trip to Egypt, which wasn't planned. We would assume then, I think putting all of this together, that they would have been in Bethlehem for some time when uh, the birth took place. This birth is, verse 7, she gives birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. I think the, 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 the word firstborn is a meaningless description unless Mary bore other children, which Matthew 13 and Mark 6 says that she did. Mary was a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus. She was not a perpetual virgin, as the Roman Catholic Church falsely claims. He was her firstborn among others. And she wraps him in swaddling cloths. Infants were commonly wrapped in separate strips of cloth or in a square piece of cloth that had a long cloth strip attached diagonally to one of the corners. So they'd be swaddled much as we do today to give them comfort and support and security. And these swaddling cloths, these long strips of cloth, would have, I assume, also served as a diaper. There was nothing at all spectacular about that, but he was laid in a manger. Now that is interesting. A cattle trough, probably a block of stone carved out to hold food for livestock. Why was a baby placed there? There was no room in the inn. Now when we hear that word in the inn, it conjures up only one picture, I think, in the minds of English readers. What's an inn? An inn is a place that I think almost always serves food. And it's a place that lodges visitors, travelers. That's what an inn is. So you hear inn, we think of this kind of a place. And we hear no room in the inn, it means that all the places where people sleep are taken up and they're full. So many have the picture of Joseph beating desperately on the door of an inn as Mary is in labor. And then this crabby desk clerk comes out and says, I'm sorry, we're all full. It's been a busy night, but every room is taken. If you want, there's a cattle shed out back. You can use that. But the Greek word translated in is the word katalumati. It is not the word commonly used for a 
in as we understand it, which is pandoxion, of which there were very few in that day, and many would argue there's no way on earth that there is a motel in Bethlehem at this time. Significantly with this, the fact that the word that's used isn't the common word for in as we would understand it, is that in Luke 22.11, this very book by this very author, Jesus uses katalumati, or a form of it, to identify the upper room where he ate the Last Supper with his disciples. Make sure that that upper room is prepared for us to eat the Passover. It's that same word that's used here. There was no room in the upper room. Now, it doesn't have to mean that, but it most likely does. So it's most likely that Joseph and Mary were staying in an upper room built on the flat roof of a relative's home, and they were staying there along with other relatives who were in town, possibly for this registration. In this setting, the guest room was too crowded to stage a birth. Relatives sleeping together in one room on the floor, that may seem unusual to us. That was very common in their setting, in their time. Now, many homes in that day had not only this upper room, this smaller box on top of a larger box below, sometimes they were the same size, but reached by a ladder in, from the interior or by an exterior staircase. Whatever the case, many of these homes were structured so with, with something that looked sort of like one of our garages. It was attached to the house and led up to the front door. So the front door was inside the garage and there was no garage door. It was just an opening there. Well, what was that? That was the cattle stall. So there's no room in the inn. There's no room in the room, in the guest room. So they go down to the cattle stall where Mary finds space and opportunity here to give birth. But whenever possible, I think it probably was very advantageous, if you could, not to have that cattle stall as the entry into your home. And so, it was common practice to carve out a cattle stall out of the side of, the, of rock, of a rock ledge, which was, they were, it was common in that day in the hills of Bethlehem. That there are such caves that have been created for this very purpose. And there was an early and widespread tradition. There's traditions all over the place that are pretty ridiculous, and you notice that quite clearly. But there were other traditions that were early and were, you, that were, were held in the East and the West, where there was some competition. And this is one of those traditions that Jesus was born in a cave. And don't think, you know, wind cave or something like that, or crystal cave, but think in terms of something carved into the side of, of, of a hill. Into the, into the soft limestone or something like that. So the cattle trough was probably carved out of that stone and very possibly a cave-like situation here where Jesus is birthed. All that we know for sure is that He was born in the humblest and earthiest of settings. Amidst the mice and cobwebs and cattle, a weary mother rests her head and a bleary-eyed father ponders the future. The long night has only begun. While Jesus is being born in a cattle stall in Bethlehem, shepherds are out in the nearby fields keeping vigil over their sheep. And it's to these shepherds, there's a shift now in the text as we come to verse 8, the angels announce Christ's birth. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. This was done April through November as shepherds were tasked with the responsibility to live outdoors and to seek pasture for their sheep. For this reason, a December 25 birthday for Jesus is quite unlikely. I think many of us have celebrated a birthday at a date that wasn't the actual day, and that may be what is done with Jesus. It wasn't until 300 years after Christ's birth that December 25th was identified, and it seems to have been chosen to displace the festival of the unconquerable sun, which was celebrated by pagan Romans in December. Some will argue it was December 25th. It doesn't matter. The date is not given to us. I think it's quite unlikely that it would have been December. But sleeping under the stars and fields near where Ruth gleaned, where King David 
pastured his father's sheep generations before, these shepherds are out in the fields providing watch care over their flocks through the night. And as they mind their business, they're unsuspecting of the history-altering events that are transpiring back in Bethlehem this very night. That ignorance now is about to end. Verse 9, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. The Greek text could be translated, an angel of the Lord fell upon them unexpectedly. Without warning, an angel wrapped in a mantle of splendor lights up the night. The shepherds are understandably gripped with fear. If they'd have seen in the night a lion coming upon their flocks, they would have been, I'm sure, there would have been a surge of adrenaline, but they could handle that. This otherworldly creature, they face this one with great fear. But the angel brings these words of grace. Verse 10, the angel said to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The angel announces good news which will fill hearts with great joy. That news comes in the form of a birth announcement. In Bethlehem, this very night, Christ. That's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Messiah. The one that we have been anticipating as God's people. This one has been born this night. And he's on a mission. A mission to save people from their sin. I wonder, as we think on this, what message would bring you joy today? If you're really honest, what message would bring you great joy? You have won the sweepstakes. You've won the lottery and you are now a wealthy person. That bring you joy? It might for a short time. Maybe it's marriage. That'd be great joy to know that I was going to be married, that I was going to have a family. Maybe it's success. Maybe it's popularity. To receive a message from God that this would happen. How does this one work for you? The message that comes from God is that a Savior has been sent. One who will provide forgiveness of sin to you. Would that fill us with great joy? The truth is, this is our greatest need. The truth is, this is our greatest access to ultimate joy. To recognize that Christ has come as a Savior from sin. There is no greater joy in this world than to know that Christ died for me to pay the penalty of my sin. That He died to rescue me. To provide forgiveness that He rose from the dead. I come to trust in that, turning from my self-dependence and from my sin to embrace this message of forgiveness in Christ. He came not to bring us money, not to bring us fame, not to take our problems away. He came to provide forgiveness of sin. There is no greater joy than to know my sins are forgiven by Christ and I've been reconciled to God. If you've not entered that relationship with God through Christ, I would encourage you, I would plead with you to turn from your sin today, this day. You will come to see that this is indeed good news of great joy. There is no greater gift than forgiven sins allowing us to know God through Christ. Entering into a relationship with God through Christ is this great gift. Verse 12, as that announcement has been made now that a Savior has come, the One sent by God for salvation. Verse 12, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Perhaps the angel gave some further direction as to which stable it was. We don't know. In any event, the angel's message would be confirmed as the shepherds found the baby wrapped in strips of cloth. Nothing unusual about that. But lying in a manger. That was, first of all, easy outdoor access to the shepherds. No need to trespass or bother anybody here this night. But it also provided a very easy means of identification you weren't going to find a whole lot of infants in mangers that night in Bethlehem. There was one. This is the one, the angel says. 
And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. The halls of heaven undoubtedly rang with joy and gladness and the angels merely transmitted that joy in their song to earth. We're witnessing here something of a Bethel-like experience. The breaking into this earth of the angelic realm, the earthly realm, is seeing now the heavenly realm as the heavenly realm cannot contain its celestial joy and announces on earth peace among those with whom God is pleased. How do you take that phrase? It says, first of all, that God's peace does not rest on all people. Some take that phrase and just say that that peace rests on all. And in one sense, in common grace, there is peace that rests on all. But I don't think that's the meaning here. Is the meaning that God's peace is earned by those who please Him. God finds people who please Him and He gives His peace to them because of what they've done. I think we would have a hard time proving that biblically. Rather, I think the idea is, and there is much support for this, That God gives His peace sovereignly to those whom He pleases to favor with His mercy, He will give peace. On earth peace to those God is pleased in His mercy to so bless. The emphasis here then does not fall on man pleasing God. Jesus did not come because He saw some very good people that He wanted to bless. He came to rescue sinners. And the only way that a sinner is rescued is if God's sovereign grace rests upon them to open their eyes to the truth of salvation. Why is it that way? Why does the emphasis fall on God's sovereign initiative and mercy? Why does God choose individuals to so bless? Ephesians 2, which deals in depth this book with this very theme. Ephesians 2, verse 7 is about as good an answer succinctly as we can come to. It says this pointedly, so that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. It is so that throughout all eternity we will revel in the grace of God. Are your sins forgiven today? Today, we worship Christ for our forgiven sins. We will do so throughout all eternity. We will celebrate in the presence of God His mercies to us, His kindness to us, and His salvation. And so there is peace on earth now and throughout all eternity for those that God is pleased to so bless as we indeed respond to that saving grace. The great shepherd had at long last come to rescue His sheep. For God, glory in the highest. For man, good news, peace on earth. Shepherds then, having received that message, witness it in the village. The shepherds witness Christ's birth, verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven. Wouldn't you love to be there in that moment? Those guys are blinking and saying, we saw this, right? We heard this, right? Life is now returned back to normal as the angels leave. And the shepherds said to one another, the only thing you could say in this situation, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Now, you notice they express no doubt about the angels' message. They do not say, let's go see if this message is true. Rather, they see the angels' message as the Lord's message. This is absolute bedrock truth. They just want a front row seat. So let's get into Bethlehem. Verse 16, they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. That is, through the night time, we assume, they scurried with enthusiasm up the terrace hillsides of Bethlehem, entering the village. And can you imagine Joseph and Mary's bewilderment as this group of rugged shepherds stick their dirty faces into the stall, locate the manger, and assemble around? What mystery there was. You realize how significant it is there was no wise man here. There were no wise men in the cave that night. 
There were no wealthy visitors to drop off their gifts for the king. The only people here this night were common shepherds confirming God's word as they gazed upon his son's face. Verse 17, and when they saw it, when they saw the sign, Christ lying in the manger, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. The new day dawned on shepherds reporting Messiah's birth. Their joy was uncontainable. This was news that simply had to be told. Their message was received by the people with astonishment. In verse 19, we learn of Mary's response in contrast with, the, with those who heard the message in Bethlehem. But Mary, verse 19, treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. She did not run around promoting herself. She did not get caught up in the scene as an end in itself. Instead, she meditated, and the Greek words are rich here. She meditated on what the angel had told her, on the words of Elizabeth, on the prophecies of Scripture. She was a quiet woman, a thoughtful woman, who was putting these ideas together, comparing them, and treasuring these things in her heart. Hiding them safely away in her soul, turning them over in her mind as she sought to understand the ways of God. Is there any question that much of the factual pieces of this account were supplied by Mary herself. As she thoughtfully considered these historic events in salvation history, the people respond, Mary responds, and Luke returns now to the response of the shepherds. Verse 20, And the shepherds return glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them according to the message of the angel. They return to their old job entirely new men. One commentator puts it. They whistled as they worked. They lifted psalms of praise to God. It was a new day. They rejoiced in the exquisite gift of Jesus Christ. As we think on this narrative and its significance to us, there's a sense in which this is all old news for perhaps most of us here, if not all of us. There's some young among us who are coming to formulate these ideas and this is so vital that we go through this text occasionally for their sake. But for all of our sakes, do we recognize this narrative forms us as Christian people? As the followers of Christ, it has a formative influence upon who we are and how we see the world. We're not dusting off a musty old story, but we're looking at this account recognizing that it forms us into the people we are to see the world in the way that we see it. That's why this account is here in part. One feature that we cannot miss in this narrative is the humility of God. Now that phrase would sound blasphemous to many. Say, our God is not humble. Our God is great. Well, we would say, no greater than ours. In fact, we serve the greatest of gods. The one true and living God. He cannot be exalted enough by His people. But, He's humble. Would we not expect the King of kings and Lord of lords to be born in a palace? A cattle stall? But I think Alfred Edersheim in his classic work on the life of Christ captures this so well. He says, earthly splendor would have been like tawdry tinsel. Put Jesus in Herod's castle over there in Bethlehem, outside of Bethlehem. Put Him in Herod's castle out there. It would have been like tawdry tinsel. But the utmost simplicity served as the clothing of the lilies, which far surpassed all the glory of Solomon's court. We come to recognize the humility of our God. We realize this is perfect. How strange the mystery of this night 
The one whose voice pierced the darkness with an authoritative let there be light now pierces the cool night air with an infant's cry. The one who gave life to the universe and manna to Israel draws his sustenance from the breast of a Jewish peasant woman. The ancient of days has his diaper changed. The Lord of heaven lays aside his regal robe of light to be born in a cattle stall at night. He who never sleeps now does in a manger. And there in that manger lies the Son of the living God. There in a cattle trough amidst the stench of manure and dusty hay and human blood lays the Savior of the world. There are radical implications for us as we put this narrative together and realize it's not just about the facts of it, it's about how that account forms who we are. How can we seek to be anything but humble people in light of this account? We serve a Savior who humbled Himself in the ultimate sense. We then prize humility. Those who are great serve. For our Savior came not to be served, but to serve. He laid aside the glories of heaven to take on flesh and to be born here. That forms us. That shapes our understanding of this world. Not only should we then be humble people, but we also need to recognize that God Himself loves humble people. And that again is significant. The pagan gods, the gods of this world, love the important people. The people who earn their way into the favor of the divine. But not our God. He loves those who are humble. The small, the forgotten people of this world. Do you have those thoughts from time to time? I am so small. I'm so little in this world. There's so many who can do so much more than I can. Who accomplish so much more. Will anyone even recognize that I lived that kind of people that God loves. He loves the humble, the weak. He loves those who have the time to listen to Him because they're desperate. They have nothing in this world to cling to but hope to those people He loves to give Himself as their hope. He has time for those who run to Him with childlike joy to find their joy in Him. Those who find false joys in small idols. There's no time. Who do we see in this event? Think of how the narrative forms us. We see Joseph. Whatever his job was, a carpenter, a manual laborer. From a storied family, but that means nothing now. This is one humble young man. And we see here in this scene Mary. Her reputation's gone among the vast majority of people who will ever meet her. She has no wealth. She has no status. She too is of this great lineage. But it means nothing now that Rome rules. And we see shepherds. You realize there's no important people here. None. It really irritates me when we keep getting wise men here because there weren't any. And that's part of the point. There was no Pharisee to witness Jesus' birth. There were no scribes who knew the law. There were no great theologians here. There were no historians here to mark the event. The only people 
at this scene were small people. They were humble people fitted to receive a humble God who is highly exalted. God chooses the despised of this world to confound those who are popular, the poor of this world to confound the rich, the weak of this world to confound the strong. That's how our God works, and that shapes the way we look at this world. How we look at Him, how we look at others, how we look at the weak, the strong, how we look at ourselves. The second element in the fabric of this passage is God in sovereign control of the details. The decrees of kings serve God's saving purposes in this event. And we can rest assured then that come what may, our God works all things together for the good of His people, for His saving plan. He will never be stymied by what takes place in this world. So I'm not going to become desperately depressed by the results of some election. I'm not going to be overly discouraged by what government is doing. I'm not going to be knocked over by the wealthy and the power brokers of this world. I don't need to worry. I need to trust in a God who sovereignly orchestrates all things for the salvation of His people. Now if I want wealth, if I want security, if I want things to go my way, if I want my agenda to be pressed, then I'll get real nervous about all this stuff. I'll get very frustrated. We have a God, and this narrative forms us to understand these simple, humble people are moving within the flow of God's providential purposes as they submit to the rulers that be. God is working His saving purposes. We can always trust Him to do that. Third element in the fabric of this passage is salvation in a person. How significant this is. When God comes to give His gift of eternal life, He sends His Son. He could have, I put that in quotes, could have done it differently. This was the best it could be done and therefore He would do it this way, but He sends a person. God does not draw into His fellowship sinners because of their religious activity. We are not reconciled to God because of our good works. Our heritage is meaningless when it comes to our relationship to God through Christ. It is through a person. We must meet Jesus. We must know Jesus. You must be walking now in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. This historical figure who rises from the dead, reigns today, and is coming again. Do you know Jesus? You can know all the facts about this passage and be as lost as the devil. Do you know Christ? Salvation comes in a person. It comes in a relationship with Jesus. The fourth element in the fabric of this text that shapes us is that those who truly perceive the gift of Jesus Christ will spread that message to others. We won't be able to do anything else. The story was first told by shepherds. Not wise men, not scribes, not scholars, not theologians, not historians. It was told by simple shepherds. There's a key there. It's not the knowledge that we have ultimately, and knowledge is important to the dissemination of the Gospel in accuracy, but it's not ultimately about our training. It's ultimately about the joy we find in the message. Are you limited by fear in your proclamation of the Gospel of Christ? Are there times you want to tell people about Jesus, but you're afraid to do so? You don't know how to get into it? It's just scary. The answer to it is not ultimately in learning courage. Learning how to overcome my fears so that I share the Gospel with others, 
there may be an element where that's part of it, and I don't know that anyone will ever share the gospel without overcoming fear sometime along the way, but that's not really at the heart of it. The heart of the issue is to be so overwhelmed with joy in the message that you can do nothing else. It's a message that bursts from you. You must tell others what Christ has done. That's what we see in these shepherds. They're not riveted by fear. They're filled with joy and there's nothing else you can do then but to proclaim the Gospel of Christ. It comes as an outflow of our joy in God. It comes from a recognition that Jesus is the world's greatest gift and only hope. It comes from an utter dependence also then on the power of the Holy Spirit. How on earth is anyone going to believe this story? Well, how did you? How do you sense that it's true? We could talk on that question for a long time, but there is the witness of the Spirit of God that this is bedrock truth. That the salvation of our world rests on the accuracy of what is recorded here. The Spirit of God witnesses to us this truth. But as we take this, going back to what others are saying, that modern science makes it clear to anyone with a brain that this is a myth. How do we get over that? In one sense, the shepherds going into Bethlehem had an easier task than we do. They're not in a modern society with the inroads of the thinking of our day. How are we going to get through this? Same way they did. There's all kinds of people that may have been impressed with the message back then, but it didn't affect anything because they didn't receive Christ as their Savior. How are we going to get this message through to unbelievers? In the power of the Spirit of God. You cannot convince anyone of the facts of the Gospel. We proclaim those facts. We announce those facts. We plead with people to turn to Christ, but only the sovereign God can open blind eyes to the truth of Christ crucified and risen. Only through the power of the Spirit. So this liberates us. It's not by my training. It's not by my powers that I will point someone to Christ. It's simply by my announcing the joy that God has given in Christ and I leave with the Holy Spirit the task of opening blind eyes to the truth of the salvation. This is our task today if God gives us opportunity. This week, like the shepherds, to go into this world and proclaim this great news. And this year, may this be our task indeed until Christ returns to announce this greatest, ultimate, exquisite gift from God the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's bow for prayer. Father, as we respond now in song, I pray that we would lift up voices of thanksgiving and joy. I pray, Father, that those who know You as Savior will rejoice this day in the salvation that we have in Jesus. For those of us, any among us here that do not know Christ as Savior, I pray that You'll open their eyes to the truth of this wonder. It is through Jesus that we pray. Amen.